Kind Father in heaven, we are so thankful you made this beautiful world for us and that you gave each one of us life through your creative power. We are so sorry the mess we've made of our home in many ways and for the sin that has come about. We want to get back as much as we can to the beautiful natural lifestyle that you intended for us in the beginning. Help us today as we discuss things together, as we, we present what you've been able to do uh, for some of your people. Lord, help it to be instructive, to be helpful, especially to be an encouragement. Help us to be an encouragement to each other. Give us wisdom now, we pray in your name. Amen. <clears throat> Yesterday we presented about six hours on how to have a, a fun, enjoyable, inexpensive country home. That's what we're all about. Uh, we only have one hour to put six hours into, so we're going to have to go very quickly. We had a bunch of handouts, but yesterday pretty well people cleaned us out. But there's a few up here, uh, for, and I'll mention those if you want to get some of the things. Uh, Linda and I uh, live in northern Montana. Uh, we, our place overlooks Glacier National Park, for those of you who are familiar with Montana. So it's a very alpine area. It's, I think it's gorgeous, but it's also snowy. Uh, you'll see some of the pictures. And uh, we, from everything we could read in God's Word and the Spirit of Prophecy, we understood that God's people are to be, are, you need to connect with the world, but not absorb the whole worldly lifestyle. And it's best for us if we have our own independent country homes, but within reach of being able to witness to people. But our homes need to be not just in the country, they need to be completely independent in the basics of life. I'm gonna buy you know, mangoes as long as I can and bananas and so on. I've tried to grow bananas, it wasn't successful. Uh, but the day will come when we can't do that and we still will need to be able to help other people. So I just wanted you to know our philosophy. Our philosophy is to have a home that's convenient, hopefully attractive, fun for the children and all of that, and yet it would continue to work just like it is if you couldn't buy anything. So I want you to know our philosophy there. That kind of guided us to what we were trying to do. I had a whole talk prepared, but I think we should suspend with that. We, we found out yesterday most people are more interested in pictures than what I'm having to say. So we're going to go right into it. We call our program Living Naturally. covers these topics. How to find good land. What is good land. How to build your own home using as many native materials as possible and still have it attractive so it's inexpensive when you're done. You should know we never had much money. And that's partly because we quit working in regular society after, well, five years. Uh, we saved our money and bought our land. And I worked three more years. As we were both teachers. Um, and teachers make a nice income, but it's not a, usually you spend everything you make to keep life going. And so it was hard to save money on that to buy land. Um, building your own home, independent utilities, how to have hot water, um, regular water, electricity, how to heat your home, all of those things without having to be connected to anything, without using any propane or natural gas or any of that. Uh, alpine gardening, we call it alpine gardening because 
we live in an area where it's really cold a lot of the year. And finally, family businesses that you can do on your land so dad can stay home with the family as much as possible and you can still make a living. We looked for land all over the West. We love the West. We love snow-capped peaks and all that. It's not for everybody. You know, a lot of people, I grew up in the Midwest. So the principles are the same, but it might be a little different. We looked for places where it, the land was not abused. It was not overused. There were people, but not too many people. And, and we took one trip one summer with friends. And you have to do that. You've got to go on the ground to find the land. And we found five or six valleys like this. Um, for some reason or other, they were kind of forgotten. The reason this valley was kind of like it was, Canada is to the left. And it's kind of a boxed-in canyon up there, a valley. And there was one Canadian family living in that whole valley up there. And then it was over the mountains to something else. And so it was, it was not a thoroughfare. It, it's cold. It's beautiful, but it's cold. Uh, you can get frost any month of the year. And the, originally, there were 400 people living in this valley in the pioneer days, which was early 1900s up to about 1935. We talked to some of the original homesteaders. They all thought they were going to be wealthy ranchers, except they found out they couldn't grow anything <laughs> just easily. So most of them left. Uh, and it kind of left the valley eventually in 1910. Glacier National Park was formed. It takes up half the valley. About where you see the little prairie out there, right in front of it this way is a river, beautiful river, and that is the border of the park. So from there over, there'll never be any development, which is nice. On this side, it's all national forest mixed in with some private land. We were looking for valleys like that. It's, we're about 40 miles from the nearest town, but thousands of people come through our valley in the summer, a very short season, so you still have all the witness and ministry opportunity you would want. And most of the people that come are interested in the natural world, which is a, a lead towards the Creator. So it's worked well that way. Um, so we looked for land, a valley first, then we came back and looked around for a piece of property. And we found when you're looking for land, the best piece of property are usually not on the market. Not always, but uh, we know three of us now in our valley, Adventist people, who have found their land when the land was not on the market. You ask around, you may work with a realtor because he knows somebody, but the land isn't actually advertised. Remember that, especially if you're looking for land that has resources on it. So this is a picture from the top of the hill of the land we actually bought. Uh, it has a beautiful view. Um, and there was some timber on it. That's another reason we bought it. If you buy land that just has no woods, how, how are you going to heat your place? How are you going to build and so on? This is just another view of the, from the top of our place, looking out across it. This is the river that goes between. And we, the guy that we bought from wanted to sell us river property too, uh, but it was more money, of course. We didn't want the river. You might say, well, why not? That's water. Well, river water is always in the lowest spot, obviously, and you can't use it. I mean, unless you have a big pump, uh, you can't even make power with it unless you build a dam of some sort. And it tends to be <clears throat> controlled because it's a fishery. This one happens to be part of the, the National Wild and Scenic River program, which is wonderful. It won't be developed, and we use it for recreation and rafting, canoeing. It's wonderful, but I wouldn't want to live on it. 
because you can't build right next to it. It can flood a little bit occasionally. But we asked the guy, we want to have a deeded easement to the river so we can get there for recreation. So we got that. So it's like we own river, but we don't have to pay for it. We're back just a quarter mile from the river on a, a little road is where our land is. This is the road to town. Uh, town is down that road and then through that little canyon you see there, 40 miles uh, from our place. It's a gravel road. Some of it's paved as you get closer to town, and town isn't big. It's about three or 4,000 people, but that's the nearest town. That's why this valley was left. It's just too far to commute, especially in the winter for people. Few people have tried it. Um, you want to buy land that most people find a little difficult to live on. That will make it cheaper. You'll never be crowded. And generally, you have good neighbors because they're pretty plucky people or they wouldn't be there. Uh, so, but you got to drive that road, and that discourages a lot of people. There's a little store halfway up the valley. It's, uh, it's a community called Polebridge. It's not a town. Uh, it's an old country store. It still operates. It was for the. It was built in the pioneer days, but now it just is a tourist thing. Uh, ten people live in Polebridge year-round. So just hardly. This is the only day you'll find hardly anybody there. This is Fourth of July parade, and it's a real folksy thing. I know the guy that's riding on the mules there. It's his mule train. That's what he does for a living. He was a near neighbor of ours for many years. Um, you can see the mountains in the background. People think it's great, but as soon as the snow comes, they all run away, which is kind of nice. This is the entry to our place, and I want you to know as you look around, we built virtually everything on here with hardly any money. Linda and I uh, did all the work ourselves with friends helping us, but we didn't, we didn't hire anybody. We couldn't afford to hire anybody. And that's another thing. If you're going to have your own home, unless you're independently wealthy, and there's probably a few of you are, and that's great, the rest of us are going to have to do our own work, our own building. And that's not all bad, because you'll get it done the way you want it. And I just want you to be encouraged. If you have to do your own building, you can do it, and you can get it done. I was all thumbs. I, I went to college, but I was totally impractical. It was really sad, but I needed to learn skills. And I can't go into the whole story in this little presentation how we learned those skills, but a lot of it was make mistakes, learn from those mistakes, and don't get discouraged just because something didn't work. Um, I want to introduce you to Chloe on the left and Misty on the right. There are two Malamutes. One belongs to our daughter and husband who are building a place on our place as well. We called it Tamarack Springs for two reasons. Tamarack is the name of the dominant tree. When we first went, we thought it were, they weren't good trees because when we first saw, or first winter we saw them, they lose their needles. It's the only conifer that loses needles. I thought they were all dead. <laughs> um, they're the best tree around. The, the kind of official name is Western Larch. They only grow in this little area, a little part of Canada, Western Larch. They're a wonderful tree. They're dense, they're fire resistant, they're wonderful firewood, building material, and all that sort of stuff. And they'll live four or 500 years. Uh, and, and the other is springs. And when you look for land, I encourage you, don't settle for something unless you absolutely have to that does not have a good water source. I believe there's plenty of good land for all of God's people to have a place with good water. It saves you so much trouble. 
We bought this because it had some springs on it. They were not developed, and it was a lot of work to develop them. But the hillside is to the right, which you'll see in a minute, and the springs come out up on the hillside, fortunately, about 80 feet. The hill is about 200 feet high. So I could pipe them down, and so our whole place is fed with gravity spring water. There's actually not that much water. I'll show you here in a minute how much. It doesn't take a lot. As long as you have some flowing 24 hours a day, all year long, it's wonderful what you can do with it. This little fountain, for instance, is this water that's coming a little too low and I can't really use it for power and so on. So it's just piped here, but that's natural spring water. There's no, pump, there's no pumps, there's nothing recycled. You can drink from it. It flows over and it's piped over and runs in a little marsh. And it runs year round, even in our cold area, because the springs are 40 degrees, which isn't warm, but they're 40 degrees year round. And in the winter, that's pretty warm, actually. The building there it looks like a house isn't a house. That's actually our winter greenhouse. And it has very few windows on the back because this is the north side. The south side is where all the glazing windows are and so on. And the other building over there is our orchard greenhouse. We wanted to be able to grow fruit, but fruit won't grow, grow there as the pioneers found out. Our gardens to the left, you can't see it. Um, this is the same area, but looking across up to our home. Our home is up on the hill a little ways, but it's still below the springs so that we have natural gravity flow into our home. Um, we believe, too, that when you do a country home, it should be natural, but as beautiful as you can make it without spending a lot of money. Because when we got there and we started building and so on, people come around. Our area people are very friendly. There aren't that many neighbors. There, was, there were no phones between the homes. There still aren't any phones between the homes unless you have an internet phone or something. And so people come around. Ah, I heard you have some greenhouses. Uh, could I look at them? Would you build me this? I, I, I hear you, you developed a spring. I got one in my place. Could you help me? I mean, we weren't there hardly at all, and you're here way out in the wilderness. How are you ever going to make money? Pretty soon people came crawling literally out of the wilderness and asking, would you do this and do that? Now, you're not going to, it isn't like an urban thing where you're going to do one thing and make $100,000. It doesn't work that way. You're going to do a little of this and a little of that and a little of something else, and you network with people. They were wonderful people. Uh, we came from California uh, where we taught down there. Uh, it was a pretty big town. It was actually in L.A. County. Fortunately, it wasn't in L.A. Uh, we counted up the last year we were there. We had 20 people in our home, inside our home, friends. And nobody wanted down there. Nobody wanted anybody in their house. They wanted to be alone. They saw people all the time. I mean, that was just normal. The first year we were here, if I remember right, we counted up. I think we had close to 200 people in our little cabin because everybody comes over and knocks on the door and who are you and where are you from and what's going on. You know, it was actually, it was more social life than it was in California. Uh, this is the road up to our house. These are some of those tamarack trees. They're beautiful trees. We're leaving all the, the old growth and just cutting the smaller ones underneath. This is our home up close. And we built it ourselves, designed it ourselves. One of the main features, we wanted to have big windows on the front that looked out so we could see the whole natural world. And it actually looks a little squished like this because of the, the photo. Notice the little <clears throat> door on the front. That's where you put the firewood. Uh, we live on a fire, uh, on a wood economy. We heat with it, we do our hot water with it, we cook with it, all of that, but you don't want it to be messy. 
So this way you don't drag it through the house, you just down a chute, it slams down, you can put it down and then somebody, Linda, is down there and stacks the wood. It works nice. This is around the side. I put this in here because we wanted our home to have nice landscaping, but we didn't have money to buy it. So the rocks that you see there are just free to pick up in our area. It's another wonderful thing about living in a more mountainous environment. There's so few people there, there's natural resources everywhere, and we got a permit, it's free, but the Forest Service just wants to know where you're going. You can pick up the rock. Of course, we have a lot of rock on our own place too, because the bark was free. Somebody had done a logging job, I don't know when exactly, and just skidding the logs in, there were kind of piles of bark that had fallen off. We scooped them up in wheelbarrows, put them in our truck, and there it is. The ferns came from our own place because wherever there's spring water, there's a lot of ferns, so we just transplanted them. And the, the geraniums and all the ivy and everything comes from our greenhouses. We figure we raise $2,000 a year of flowers and greenery that we use to landscape our place. We want it to look pretty. If we had to buy all that, where am I going to get that kind of money? You know? um, we sell some of them, too. The, see the little screen thing at the bottom under the planters? That's important, too. That is the vent that ventilates the entire house. Uh, and it's important to have something like that. Everybody's always sealing their house up and all this for winter. We have a big hole, but it goes into our root cellar. And I'll talk about that in a minute, but that's what that's for. The little plywood there is when it's 30 below zero, I slide the plywood over. It's not automatic. <laughs> you kind of have to do some things yourself. Um, this is the walkway up to the house, to the front door, and more of the flowers and so on. But So none of you want to run to Montana real fast. This is the same spot last winter, okay? Yeah. And that's Chloe. You notice she's happy as can be. She's, <clears throat> she's a 70-pound Malamute. I don't think she could see over the snow even if she stood up. So now you know why nobody lives in our valley, right? We love snow. It's wonderful. It's what gives us all our spring water, okay? Uh, and notice our snow's white in Montana. I lived in the Midwest, and the snow came down white, but it didn't stay white very long in the, in the towns and cities. It was pretty brown and all that sort of stuff, really quick. Uh, <clears throat> and, and snow, we have snow on the ground five months out of the year. It's an alpine area, which means that the snow doesn't come and then melt off, and, and you come like it did in Indiana, where I kind of grew up. You get cold, and, and, but a week later it warmed up and the snow was gone. And so if you forgot something or if you laid an axe down or whatever, you could find it. That isn't the way it is here. When it starts to snow, it snows and it may settle a little bit, but then it snows some more and it just keeps building up. And typically we get up to about three feet of snow pack, which is dense snow, and then it slowly starts to melt off and by April sometime it's gone. Uh, people get what's called cabin fever. The reason is they don't have any greenhouses they just sit in their and they don't, they sit in their little house and it's like <laughs> there's nothing to do. Well, people ask us, so what do you do up there all winter? Well, I, I can tell you, I'm not just sitting around. Although we do read more books in the winter, it's nice, and you can't work as much. The Lord meant it that way. I don't think the Lord intended you have to get out every day, no matter what the weather is, and drive to work. Just. Go with the flow. That's what we do. Inside, it looks like this. That's the main room. 
the mountains are actually a lot closer than they look because it's wide angle, okay? But you can look off to the mountains and you look down, you see the little fountain down there and the garden beyond and so on. You can see here, we tried to make it so inside and outside almost looks the same. We love the natural world. We want to live like, if I could, I'd live like Eden. I can't. I'd freeze to death, <laughs> okay? But you can kind of be like that, okay? In this picture, I can explain a little bit more. This is our daughter, Rochelle, who grew up there for 19 years and went off to college and all that, but they live back in the area now. Her husband is facing her there. <clears throat> see some more pictures of them. And you see just the little top of our grandson. And there's Chloe. The way, if you want to heat a home in a colder environment like this, but I think the principle would work down here where your problem is more air conditioning. Um, if you just have a normal house like people build, it's just, you know, framed and drywall and, and, and all of that, and all you're doing is heating the air or cooling the air, the air weighs almost nothing. So as soon as the heat source or the air conditioner goes off, it isn't very long, and the temperature changes, okay? If you fill your home with what's called thermal mass, I call it, it's, it's heatable mass, which basically means concrete and stone in a home like this, and you have enough of it, it moderates the climate in your home. So it doesn't matter if your stove runs for a long time, it doesn't change the temperature much. But when the stove goes off, the temperature doesn't change much overnight. It just stays even. Uh, it works both because we, we need, we don't re really need air conditioning, but we, it does get warm in the summer, and Linda has a wood cook stove, and they're notorious for overheating your house in the summer. It doesn't here because that fireplace, we build it ourselves, but it, it has uh, about 40,000 pounds of concrete and stone. It's not a facade like a lot of greenhouses are. I mean, uh, uh, fireplaces are where it's just block and, and all that. It's actually solid reinforced concrete, the whole thing with just flues built in and then stone. And Linda, who's standing over back to us and right over here, she laid all the stone. Uh, you, I, I won't show you pictures of her first work because we didn't know what we were doing. It was terrible. Uh, she's learned to be a great mason. And I'm the hod carrier and I carry the heavy rocks and I mix the mortar and all that. And later, if some of you are interested and you want to know all the details of what's the right mix for mortar and, and how long does it have to be there and how do you lay stone and all that, we had to learn all that. There was, it's a lost art. People used to know that kind of stuff. We had to learn it from scratch, really. And a lot of it, you can read a book, you can watch something on the Internet, but it's nothing like doing it. And, and then you find out what you don't know. Um, the, con the floor under Rochelle there is actually a ceiling over our furnace room. That's why that floor is not cold. And you imagine 20 below zero in Montana, those huge windows to the right, and it's a two-story, huge thing, the floor would be bone cold, even if you were heating the place. It's a warm floor. The temperature is almost the same here as it is upstairs. And that's because you design it so that your heating system, which is all natural and just based on wood, works to heat the home evenly. And you gotta have a lot of concrete and, and uh, stone for that to happen. We gotta move really fast here. This is Linda's cook stove. Do you want to come up and talk about it or not? Okay. So a lot of you ladies have probably thought I could never do this, but Linda's an expert. Actually, yes, this is um, my... They just want to hear this a little bit. 
uh, wood cook stove, like you said. Uh, it's one that we just recently purchased <coughs> up until this point. I had used very inexpensive wood cook stoves that were old and airy, and you know what? But even those, those work, those cook, those bake, and do a good job. The biggest problem with them is they require a lot more wood <coughs> going in constantly, which gave me a problem with this one because uh, I tried to use it the same way with the same amount of wood and I ended up all of a sudden within 10-15 minutes my oven was 500 degrees and I was burning my bread and it was really bad until I backed off and said okay a little wood <laughs> goes a long ways which was wonderful and we do have information about that particular uh, uh, stove over here but I really like it in the sense that I feel like I don't want to be a control freak, but I feel like I am in control because I can go to the woods, I can get my fuel whenever I want, whenever I need, as long as I can <laughs> get him going with me because it's more than a one-person job. But, uh, you know, in other words, I'm not dependent on when's the propane truck going to get up here, uh-oh, uh we let the tank get too low or whatever, you know, I can always cook and I love the way it cooks. It's probably easier for me now to cook on this stove than a regular electric or propane gas stove. And the whole top gets hot. You regulate your temperature of what you're doing by where you put your pan. And, you know, I've just found it's a really great way to cook. Yeah. Okay, I will. She told me we gotta hurry, we gotta hurry. Okay, behind her you see there's actually a microwave there. Um, we have a hydroelectric plant, runs from our springs. We make our own electricity simply that way, and it will run those kind of appliances, but it would never run a regular huge electric stove. They just take too much power. Uh, you see the little thing there? There's, I don't have time for all the pictures. That her, the wood comes from a little cart right there that goes into our pantry where the wood's stored. Um, that's the bread that she makes in that. Six loaves in the and there's raspberries we picked from our garden. We have a refrigerator, it runs on our, our little hydro. She's got a Bosch maker, that's her bread making area over there. These are apricots from our own trees. Uh, and peaches in the background she'd already canned. And wood stoves are wonderful for that. Misty is demonstrating uh, the, the wonders of mass heating here. Because we learn really fast, the problem with wood stoves, this is my opinion now, is that <clears throat> You build a fire, the fire wants to burn hot, quick, and then it's gone. So people shut the stove down. Uh, so it will burn longer. And the whole thing, you can buy three, $4,000 stoves that are, have all these controls on them. Some are even run by electricity and everything to try to make it burn 10 or 12 hours. When you do that, you get an inefficient burn, typically. And most of the heat goes right up the chimney, at least half of it. That's the problem. Well, the secret to all of that is to put your stove downstairs. Ours is downstairs kind of under that pillow there. There's a room down there. It's a small room. That's where the wood stove is. Makes it safer, too. You, you burn a hot, clean fire. Give it all the air it will take so it really burns. And, but if you did that normally, the, hot, the house would go up 10 or 20 degrees, and when it was out, it'd go down 10 or 20 degrees, and you'd be cold. Instead, the smoke, you see no chimney, the smoke goes under the couch in concrete, comes into this curved walkway, this stone walkway, and that's actually the smoke flue. 
comes all the way under there, and that's why Misty's on it, because it's nice and warm, and so you get a warm floor. <clears throat> comes over right here. You can see the edge of the fireplace. It goes into the fireplace and then straight up for 25 feet in a one foot by one foot flue. And so you go through about 50 feet of concrete. By the time that smoke, and it goes kind of slowly through the horizontal part, it's liberated almost all its heat to the stone, but it only raises the temperature in the house maybe three, four degrees. Then it just sits like that for the rest of the day. You don't have to keep stoking it. It doesn't overheat. It's not uneven. Our home has so much, it's about 100,000 pounds of concrete. We poured it all ourselves, so it's not, not expensive. And stone, we can go off to town, we can leave for a few days, come home, and the house is still warm. It slowly drops. I just heard from a guy that's kind of watching the place while we're gone. Uh, when we left, I don't know, it was probably around 70. And after nearly a week, it was still 56 in Montana winter. I mean, that's wonderful. We don't have to have propane or thermostats or backup or any of that sort of stuff. This is the tears going down. For this whole system to work, you have to have a way for the cool air in the house that, is, it, that settles at the bottom to go down somewhere. If not, it settles on your floors. So it goes right down to the basement. At the basement, if you turn left, it's our furnace room. Right, there's a little rec room. This is the rec room. Linda laid all that stone with the help of our daughter, and a lot of that stone came from this hole when we dug it, because we dug our whole basement by hand, and saved all the pretty rocks, and that's a foot thick with foam behind it, so that holds the heat in that room, and, and, the, and the ceiling above it is also concrete, which is our bedroom above that, and that warms up, so you have warm floors. Um, this is the furnace room next to it, and it's, it, there's a lot going on here, I'll just be very quickly. You see the, uh, the little box there? That's the end of the wood chute. So it comes down, stays out of the, the main house. You just stack it there. Because it's stacked there in the wintertime with the wood heater going there, it gets super dry. And because it's super dry and warm, you can hang clothes there and they dry right out. This uh, heater is one we designed ourselves. It's just a simple box. But it's made out of quarter-inch steel. I just had a welder. It's very inexpensive. You can have those done for about $800, okay? And there's a lot of details to it, but the point is it's inexpensive and it'll last 100 years. And, and there's nothing fancy about it. You put wood in it, you light the fire, and leave the door ajar, give it all the oxygen, it burns. You know, no controls, no fancy this, no cleaning out the creosote, anything like that. Um, the fire, of course, first thing it does is heat the air in there. The air goes up, and you can see a little flue up there beyond over that box, that's going out to the living room. And there's several more of those, a couple more, that go to a bedroom and other places, allow the warm air to go where you want. Normally people do that, uh, but it's called forced air, and they use a little pipe like this. Air won't move a pipe like that, so you have to have a big blower. It takes more energy. And you gotta have filters, and you know how furnaces are, they're always giving you trouble and going out and so on. Eventually, 10 years or so, you buy another one. Well, you're not gonna buy another one. And the air will move because the flues are large. They just go up, it heats, the cool air comes down the steps, and you get this normal cycle, but you can hardly feel it. This little thing right here is a box that's on top of the heater. That box is our hot water heater. It's also welded out a quarter inch steel with well casing going up the middle. So the flue gases 
immediately from the heater go right up through the water and it heats water just like that automatically so you have all the hot water you want in the winter we have too much hot water so we're forced to put it in a little stone hot tub in our bedroom <laughs> and, you know and it's nice to soak in and all that uh, etc you see her automatic washer beyond there and then there's two doors we dug this by hand like I said because we didn't want to dig at all and the, between those two doors is earth that was left. This room is insulated. The walls are a foot thick, and so they hold a lot of heat. But beyond that, we want it to be cold. So there is no insulation beyond that. And there's double door because of that, and in there is our root cellar, okay? That's the root cellar. There's two rooms, and Linda has 1,500 jars. They're not all full all the time, but we can can them on the side. Down here, we do our potatoes and apples, stuff like that. The boxes in the end are used to stack carrots uh, and so forth. Excuse me. Yeah. What's the temperature on that room? Okay, the question was, what is the temperature in this room? Uh, in the wintertime, it's in the 40s, okay? And that's when you need it to be as cool. The warmest it ever gets is about 55 in the middle of the summer. Our ground temperature is 40 degrees year-round. And that's one of the advantages of living in the mountains. You can have a cold root. It's basically a walk-in refrigerator a lot of the year. This is the other room, and this is closer to the vent, and it has freezers in it. And, but those freezers seldom come on because they're in a cold room, and the coldest air is coming by them, but they run on our little hydro plant, too. Um, and in here, she like dry goods, like beans and flour and all kinds of stuff like that. And I, I can't take time, yesterday we did, uh, notice there's, it's dry, there's no mold, it's, it's all because it's vented properly and it helps ventilate your home and humidify your home. You don't need dehumidifiers or humidifiers. You know, when you live naturally and you start to work with nature instead of trying to overpower nature with all kinds of gadgets you have to buy and extra power and everything, life becomes simple and you don't have any bills. I mean, it may sound great, it is great. But you have to plan ahead. And we, we learned all this because we built what we call our mistake house first. And we made lots of mistakes. This is, I just have a few pictures of building the home. This is the root cellar when we were building it. And you notice we, we put up stack wall, just retaining walls that Linda and Rochelle laid with stone that came from their ugly stones. But they're strong and good. They're built right into the hill because we wanted that 40 degree cold to help our root cellar. Beyond that, you see the furnace room and that rec room. That's all is foam behind it, and that's variable foam, and that insulates it away from the cold ground. That's what you want. Um, we mixed all the concrete by hand. Uh, Linda laid all the rock down there. We didn't want just raw concrete everywhere. The stones are so much prettier, uh, and they hold a lot of heat. It took time to lay the stone, but the stone was free, except for a little mortar. It's a wonderful building material. Uh, we framed it. When we framed it, we were actually working full-time when we built it. We were operating a small independent academy that we had for about 30 or 35 years. And the students were helpful in lifting things, but they weren't carpenters. And they only worked two hours a day, but it was a good experience for them, and it was a help to us. But I didn't have full-time to work on the house either. So it was quite a race to start in the spring and get the place up and enclosed and livable and heatable before the snow came in November.
We lifted everything by hand, uh, and I know you can, they got fancy cranes today and, and great alls and all that, and if you got the money to do it, it's all fun and, and wonderful. But if you don't, the neighbors will come and help in a place like ours, because everybody helps everybody there. I had helped uh, some of these folks. They helped me a lot more than I ever helped them, really, the way I look at it. That's what it looked like after we'd just gotten it enclosed and, and roofed, but we're ready for winter. When winter comes, you gotta have a fuel supply, and I've showed you how the wood works, but you, you wanna have a woods. We bought this because it had a, a mature forest on it. It has some four or 500 years old trees. We're leaving those, they're wonderful. I love, I love ancient trees, and so they're staying. But surrounding it, as you can see, are a lot of little trees. Uh, Linda's standing by our biggest tree, that's Methuselah, we've called it. And, but all the little stuff in there, it's kind of like growth that comes underneath. They need to be thinned, they're too thick. So we take out all the crooked ones, the diseased ones, the ones that are too thick. So most of the trees we cut are small, and when it gets cleared out, it looks something like this. We've had to build roads around. And by the way, this little section right here is kind of a hairpin turn. We had needed a lot of fill. From that, and you can probably figure out where that came from. That's where our basement dirt went, but it was all wheeled over there with wheelbarrows. It saved us thousands and thousands of dollars not having to hire somebody with a backhoe and dump trucks and all the rest of it. And you can, you might say, you can't do that. Actually, I think it was good for my health. It was. It was, and it was quiet. And when we got done, it, the place wasn't a mess. When you get machinery on your place, be, now we had this road put in with a, a, a cat, but we carefully cleaned everything out and I was right there every minute so the guy didn't shove stuff all over the place because you can ha end up with a lot of time and money spent landscaping after you do a big machine like that. There's, there's, there's place for everything, but machine, big machines aren't the answer to everything in my view. Do everything you can by hand. Then you don't have to have a job away from your family so much, uh, you can be there with them. Yeah. The trees that you burned, were those tamarack trees which require resistance so they burn longer? The question was what kind of trees do we burn for firewood and actually I would like to burn the tamarack because it's the best firewood around, but they live forever and, and I don't want to cut the big ones. So most of what we burn are softwood, spruce and pine because they're the quickie, they die a lot easier and that's what I burn a lot more because it's what I, I want to clean up the place but whenever I can get tamarack I get it uh, and they are fire resisting trees they have thick bark they're kind of like redwoods of our area uh, anyway you got to build good roads on your place but they should be simple and you can waste a lot of money on roads if you don't do it carefully but if you do uh, it works out well the sub gravel for a lot of this these roads actually came from our garden and I said this yesterday, but one of the things we learned real quick in a country home like this, this place was wonderful. It had all the natural resources we needed. They were just all in the wrong places. They were. The, the rocks were in our garden. The black soil was in our spring bottoms. Uh, and all of that. And the timber was, you know, some of it was shading the, the greenhouses. So you have to move stuff around, but it's... That's, you have it there. You don't have to go out and buy a lot of stuff. This road comes around, our home is actually off to the, kind of in the center, and this road curves around, ends up going clear to the top of the hill to where Ted and Rochelle are building. That's what our woodshed looks like. 
and we don't attach the woodshed to the house. You probably notice the house stands alone. All of our business buildings and our more industrial buildings and all that are down away from the house. A lot of people think that's terrible. You've got to walk 500 feet to get to your greenhouse. I think it's wonderful. Uh, you remember Ellen White said it's good for our institutions to be in hilly places and keep the houses away from the main buildings where people got to walk a little bit. Uh, I don't need a gym membership. And I suppose most of you don't either. Um, anyway, a lot of little wood, you don't have to split it. Uh, and that woodshed holds two years' supply for our home. It takes about five cords a year of that kind of wood to heat our home in the winter. Every good homestead needs um, a good water supply. And this is where our springs uh, come out. They come out up the hill a little bit. We dug them by hand. They were, it was just an absolute jungle when I went up to where these were, but they were trickling down the hill. I found, I followed it back, started digging out, and they actually seep out of 30, 40 feet in an area, and then it's two or 300 feet, and then there's another little seep. Some are bigger, and anyway, we made these springs by hand. It took me about two or three weeks to dig one of these, uh, working eight, 10 hours a day. And again, people say, that's terrible. No, it wasn't terrible, it was fun. Uh, for me to figure out how it all worked, put the pipes in, and when you're all done, it'll last a lifetime. It costs virtually nothing. This is a smaller spring. This is actually one that feeds our house. And it doesn't run that much. It only runs like seven gallons a minute. But that's, that's about 10,000 gallons a day. So we don't even have to cover it. It just flows out. It's pure water. Uh, even if some animal happens to step in it, you're not going to get sick from it. But if, it, if you're sque you know, kind of queasy about such things, you would line that with stone or whatever, make a little concrete collar and put a lid on it. It doesn't really need it. Uh, as long as you're catching right at the source. It does have a screen there, which is a, it, it, but it's not a microfilter. It it's basically window screen that's on a, um, a, a little um, threader there. And the pipe, you can see it going down, heads down to the house. From there to the house, it's only about 150 feet. This is the amount of water you can run a whole homestead on. This is where several of our springs have come together. That's not very much water, but it's steady year-round. If you have that much and you have a little head on it, you can make your power, you can water all your gardens and greenhouses, and take care of your house and all of that. Um, that amount of water is so small, nobody cares about it. You're not going to get restrictions and all the rest of it. So if you can, find land somewhere that has flowing water. We piped it down the hill. You can kind of see it goes up and kind of in, and one of those little basins is where one of our springs are. And we dug all our ditches by hand. That way I didn't have to have roads and all that, and I didn't have to have backhoes and all that sort of expense. Quickly. What did you use to test for water on your land? You want to know what we used to test for water in our land? Uh, <clears throat> I never tested it, but somebody else did. And I can tell you very briefly that story, and I'm afraid we're going to run out of time, folks. We'll do the best we can. But uh, there's a series of springs along this hill. The last one, major one, is off our land. It's in the national forest behind us. So some of our neighbors, none of whom live there year-round, they were summer folks, years ago they asked me if they could hire us to, to put in a water system similar to ours for all of them. Four of them went together. So we did that. Um, and it's the same water. It's just one spring down. Uh, one of the guys uh, lived back in Minnesota. He took the water. He went, after we got done, went to his cabin. They have a small summer cabin. 
and took a canning jar, I think, and got it full of water from the kitchen sink and took it back home. And he sent a sample into the Minnesota State Lab. He told me this the next summer when he came, showed me the paperwork, to have it tested. And I knew we'd been drinking it for years, and I was sure it was great, and it's soft water. It, there's, it's not hard water at all. There's no smell. There's nothing. It tastes wonderful. But I'd never actually had it tested, so he did. And a after a week or so, he got a call uh, from the lab, and he, they said, are you Mr. So-and-so? Yeah, and you gave us a sample. Yeah, and, and um, so, well, we have a question about it. And he said, well, is there a problem? And they said, no, there's no problem. He said, we're having a debate down here at the lab. And what's the problem? Well, we're having a debate of where in Minnesota this water came from. <laughs> and he said, well, why? He said, well, it's the purest water we've ever tested in this lab. <laughs> and he said, well, I got it from my cabin out in Montana. And the guy said, I knew it didn't come from around here. Anyway, <laughs> there's nothing in it. He showed me the lab. There's a tiny bit of, of uh, suspended clay can't see it. You can see in our pools here pretty soon. It just looks perfectly clear. But if you boil it away, there's this little talcum powder. It's just clay, which is actually healthy for you. Um, there's a tiny, tiny bit maybe of calcium, but that's it. One of the great benefits of living in a mountain area is you get the water first. That's where it falls, and it runs downhill from there all the way to the ocean. Farther down you go, the more likely you're going to have agricultural runoff, pesticides, herbicides, contamination, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Think about that, okay, um, when you buy land. It ends up in a little powerhouse down by the pond, and that's also built out of stone and cement. It's small, about 8 by 8, and it's built into the hill so it won't freeze in the wintertime. And inside, sorry, inside it looks like this. There's two small water turbines, and I actually have one of the turbines right here. Um, inside the white part is one of these. It's tiny. It has these little, little cups. You just have a high-speed, small stream of water coming. It's just like a garden hose almost. It's a little stronger than that. And it spins this thing around, and this just screws on, the, on a shaft on the end, and, and it's to a permanent magnet. spins that magnet, and there's wires on the outside. There's no moving wires at all, and it produces all electricity. It's utterly simple. Um, you can buy those for about $2,000. And you spread that over a lifetime, you're not paying very much. Um, we have two of them for redundancy. One will run our whole place, but I usually run one nozzle on each. And the one on the left, I just changed the bearings on that after seven years. That's the only maintenance. I mean, how good is that? It doesn't get much better than that. One moving part. And and I have a whole pile of those bearings sitting in a little jug over here, probably enough for 50 years. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty simple. Uh, it goes from there into a set of batteries, deep cycle batteries. You want deep cycle batteries. You don't have to have a big one. Our, simple, our, our system is very simple. It's 12 volt initially. You can get them 24, 48. As you go up the line, they get more complicated, more expensive, and all that. Goes into a simple solid state inverter. I got that used. I've never had an inverter go bad. That converts it to household power. From there, it goes out hundreds of feet in each direction to our greenhouses and shop and over to the, what was the boys' bunkhouse and a cottage and up our, the hill to our home, all underground in, in just pipes. And you got power everywhere. It's really nice. 
When you get up to the house, it produces all your light, runs all of our normal appliances except heavy use. We don't do air conditioning, we don't use it for heating and all that, but blenders and vacuum cleaners and computers and, you know, Bosch bread mixer and all the little stuff that you use, including this projector, I mean, it works anything like that. And down in my shop, I have all kinds of shop tools that it runs. Washer. It does not run a dryer. It will run the tumbler part of a dryer. That's a whole other story I probably don't have time for. I worked with a neighbor to make a gas dryer into a wood dryer. It worked great. We can't do that in our place yet because of his, his utility room was right above his furnace room downstairs. Mine isn't because I didn't know that then. So it's a mistake that I made. Uh, so Linda hangs her clothes outside, which is better in the summer, and inside in the furnace room. Refrigerator runs on it. Both freezers will run on it because they're intermittent. It does fine. Yeah. And we had up to 10 young people living on our place with us in our little school program. Teenagers. Almost none of them knew how to turn off lights when they showed up. Uh, and in the dead of winter, it was nip and tuck sometimes if we had enough power for all our classroom. I mean, those tiny little things. And they ran all of that. It's wonderful. But it does have some limit. You can't just go buy some huge industrial machine or something like that. If you're going to do that, you've got to be hooked to the grid. Uh, and if that's what you want, that's fine. I didn't want that. Could you share just briefly what you shared yesterday about the dryer, what you do I, with your friends? You know, I don't think we have time unless you folks... Let's do those questions when we're all done. If you, some of you want to stay by, I'm happy to stay as long, but I don't want to keep you away from other things you want to do. But yeah, it's fun. Um, so, alpine gardening. How do you grow food? It's nice valley, and like one of my, my old-time neighbors said, well, Jerry, it's nice you came here, because we were called the California kids when we came. We were young, about 27. And um, he said, but it's nice, it's beautiful here, but you can't eat the scenery. And he was right. Most, they expected us to come, build a little cabin, like everybody did, and after one winter, because that's what almost everybody did. It's so terrible. How are we going to do anything here? We were determined. And to live in the country, folks, you've got to be determined that after your decision for Christ and your decision for your wonderful wife and husband and your kids, the next one's got to be your home. And if you're determined to have a country home, the Lord will work with you to have it, no matter what the situation is. If, it's, if your attitude is, is what I call titanic thinking, was that an iceberg? Do we really need to get off the boat? I'm not so sure. People did that on the Titanic. They weren't sure. If you hesitate and you're, it isn't really your priority, it's only if it's fun, it's only if it's convenient, you're probably never going to get a country home built. So for us, snow came like this and was like, whoa, now what do we do? Uh, this was taken last winter. See the fountains? disappearing and so is the garden fence out there and winter's long so we realized we had to build some greenhouses actually down here most people if they garden I'm guessing probably go to a nursery at least to get their starts you know a lot of people do that if you're gonna have a whole food supply like we wanted to have you're gonna need hundreds and hundreds of starts it isn't just a few you can grow in your kitchen window and so we needed something, and I think all, a greenhouse is good for everybody, almost in any location, to at least do that much. For us, we needed it for a few other things. 
Um, this is looking, this is our winter greenhouse. This is where we grow all our starts. We grow a lot of subtropical fruit in there too. We grow winter greens, all those kinds of things we couldn't have. Um, uh, this is what it looked like inside on that same day. Okay. And you may think we're really decadent because we got a couple little pools in there, but uh, I even convinced the tax man that these weren't swimming pools because they don't have any filters, they have no pumps, okay? That's just pure spring water, there's no chemicals, nothing. What they're designed for is to heat the place. They are the heater for it, along with all the stonework and concrete and everything. It's built just like our home. That moderates the climate in there, so like on a day like this, it was probably, I don't know, it was probably 45 or 50. It isn't hot in there. You can heat it that hot, but it doesn't really, plants don't need that in the dead of winter. This is in February. Um, but it just stays like that. Um, if I go home and build no fire at all, I come back in the morning, it might be one degree cooler, even if it's really cold outside. That's the beauty of having thermal mass in there. Now, whenever we want to, we can heat it. We have a little wood-heated pool heater. We heat the hot tub and you can soak in there. It's actually good for therapy. This one we keep a little cooler, but they, there's 4,000 gallons of water and together with all the stone and masonry, it moderates the climate. Without that, our, our first attempts, we made all kinds of mistakes. We, we had more like what you'd call just a, you know, just a plastic type greenhouse. It just froze up in the winter and it overheated terribly in the summer. This one does neither because of the mass in it. A couple months later, it looks like this. This would be in late spring. Uh, the fig tree's all leafed out now, and there's several other trees, and flowers are all starting to come out, and it'll look like this for eight months, okay? We love flowers. If you wanted to, you could have no flowers, and you could have just all greens and other plants and everything growing in there. We like flowers, too. It's, it's our little thing to inspire our soul, especially in the winter. You go down there, you can sit when the sun, when the sun comes out, it's nice. Um, we love uh, Bird of Paradise. They do well in there. Um, it's two stories, so we could have big trees. And this is what the figs look like. There's two crops. You get hundreds and hundreds of figs. Figs do go dormant. It loses its leaves in December. It starts leafing out again in late February. So there's a short time in there with no leaves. But if you look closely, some of you have fig trees. See the fig here? It's coming out between the main stem and a leaf. Every major leaf produces a fig. It's incredible. I mean, they're one of the best trees for food you can possibly have. Uh, the last few leaves don't produce figs because they don't have time. They're the ones that produce the figs are there. They come out in the spring and give you your spring crop. Uh, so you get two crops. The, the later crop is the larger one. It's so big, I've built catwalks up through the fig tree to pick all the figs. You can see me there, how high it is up there picking. And I, we have a little picker, Lin, Linda's pushing it out to me like this, and I drop it in and she reels it in. Um, there's so many, they fall over the place, and if you're not on them, they can make a mess. But they're really sweet and they're really good food. Uh, we also have a small avocado tree, which hasn't done very well. It's produced a few little things, but blossoms wonderfully. It's grown a lot bigger now, but it has a hard time setting. And we have an olive tree that's just getting started. I had a really big olive tree, grew 15 feet, blossomed wonderfully, never produced. You, you learn all this stuff. And I found out olive trees aren't all created equal. Some of them are self-pollinating, some are not. 
The first one wasn't, this one is. Uh, and we have a small lemon tree. We've tried a lot of different citrus. Citrus is problematic. It wants a really hot, dry climate. We don't have that. But lemons do the best. We get up to maybe 15 lemons. That's the most we've ever gotten in a year. Um, another way we use this building. This, you see the fig tree there starting to get a few yellow leaves. This is real late in the season, probably late October, starting early November. Our garden outside is just freezing down hard. Um, pretty soon there's snow everywhere. We just before that happens, we transplant in large amounts of greens, things like kale, Swiss chard, and so on. And that's what is in there. See the kale there mixed in with all the flowers? You can see a few olives on the tree in front of it. And then there's green onions, there's Swiss chard, there's beets that will produce a lot of beet greens, there's parsley, and we have lettuce upstairs. All those greens stay fine through the whole winter. They don't go bad and they don't grow much. There's just not enough light. Even if you heat it, they, won't, they only grow an inch or two, but they don't bolt either. So you can pick fresh greens all winter. We also produce lots of flowers in there, and that's what's used to help beautify and landscape our place. Without it, you're going to a nursery to buy it or you just don't have it. And Chloe's there laying by, you can see we got flowers inside the house and outside the house. Uh, this is another big pot by the house, and it's it kind of is there to complement the natural beauty. These are wild lupins that grow all over the place there in Montana in the summer. Another thing that you use a solarium like this for is to do all your starts. And at first we tried to just put the starts out in the main solarium. Well, in late winter, early spring, when you're starting things, um, it's probably 50, 60 in there. It could be a little warmer. Maybe if you heat it a lot, you get it 70. It's comfortable, it's nice, stuff grows. But you don't get many plants to germinate at 50 degrees or 60. They want it 70 or 80, a lot of them. Uh, so we built this little potting room. This is the main solarium's to the right through a door there. This is on the edge of the building. And this is a potting room, but beyond it is our germination room. And most big nurseries, what they do is they have these heating pads. And that's just more power, more electricity. And they work nice. What we wanted something natural, and so what we have is an 80-gallon tank that I bought for 20 bucks. It was used. It's laid on its side. We heat down in our pool heater, which I'll show you in a minute. We heat water. It's piped over here naturally. It heats that tank up to 200 degrees and heats the room to 80. We put our starts on that little thing there, close the door, and stuff pops out of the ground because it's warm. It has a big sunny window there, so we grow all our starts, probably five or 600 starts in there and tons of, of geranium starts and so on. You need some place like that where you can start your starts. Uh, back in the solarium, you wonder how you're gonna heat something like this. Well, under that little patio, and we have a nice little place to sit there, uh, that's actually a furnace room underneath, kind of like at the house. It's a concrete ceiling. So that heats up nice and warm, but you don't see a flue. The flue is actually coming under the bridge and it goes into this stone walkway behind where the picture's taken and finally out a big 20-some foot chimney again that's all concrete. So it works the same. It absorbs the heat as it goes out. It doesn't overheat it, but the solarium won't change temperature two or three degrees. Sometimes I, if I heat it during the day a little bit and just let it go, I come down the next morning, it's the same temperature, usually one or two degrees less. Uh, so it works wonderfully. There's the stairs coming down to it. That's the cold air return. And if you have a family greenhouse, it won't work well in the winter especially unless you have a place for the cold air to sink to. Otherwise, it sinks to the floor and you have cold floor for all your plants. 
And you need a place on it. It's not big. I think it's about 12 by 12. Yeah, it doesn't have to be under the whole thing. That's what heats the whole solarium. It's actually a big tank. I, I paid $70 for a used pressure tank, and we built a wood stove right into it. And the details of how you do that, because we did it wrong the first time, uh, I can tell you somebody if they want to ask. It has a well casing inside that's the flue. You can see it at the top. Eight-inch well casing, quarter-inch steel going up there. So you're actually building your fire right in the water. It heats water incredibly fast. 200 gallons, and we can use that to go everywhere. We run it to the hot tub or the pool. There's a shower room, a laundry. And we heat it to only about 100 degrees. And then it's piped all through our greenhouses, and we water all our sensitive plants. All our starts, our tomatoes, the squash, cucumbers, beans, they don't like 40-degree water. All summer, they get water like that. In the summer, we don't have to use this because we have a solar collector that makes warm water for us in most of the summer. But in the early season, we have to use this. And that's, that's what we use to heat. The way you get wood for that, and this is how we get wood for the house as well, uh, we tried to get our whole wood thing down so it's super efficient. We go into the woods around us or on our own place and get dead trees laying on the ground or surface, or we thin them a little bit. And we try to cut them all about the same length. A nine feet works good for us because we like it 18 inches. You bring it back, you stack it in a homemade jig like that, quick, quickly, all lined up, and then you just start sawing. And in, in a few minutes, I can saw a third of a quart of wood. So the wood is quick and fast. And, and it's right there, we put a tarp down so it doesn't get wood mess all over our nice little gravel road. And then we pick up the sawdust, we, it's all nice and dry, because it's from dry wood, we put that in barrels and we use that for our starter. And we also, excess, we use that to bury all our pipes. The whole thing on a country home, it's all gotta be efficient. Every move counts. And I've told people often, I used to think that, you know, going to college and getting a degree like I did and trying to get teeth, you know, and all this, you know, you gotta, that, that really takes a lot of brains. Well, actually to live in the country and do it right takes more brains. Don't think the country people that know what they're doing are dumb. They're not. It really, if you just think it through and are careful, the Lord will work with you so everything, everything has a place on a country home, uh, including the children and everybody. Everybody's needed. Um, so that's how we do it. You wheel it over, you put it down that little chute, that's another little chute, slides down right to the furnace room. But that has a couple other purposes. You stomp your feet to keep it clean, and that's where the cold air goes down on that side. The stairway's on the other side, so everything works naturally. There's the wood downstairs. It takes about two cords of wood to heat this whole solarium for a whole Montana winter. Isn't that incredible? Uh, it's wonderful. Um, now, to the orchard greenhouse. What time is it? Are we running out of time? Yeah. 10.35. When are we supposed to quit? 10.35. Uh, we're supposed to quit right now? Okay, folks. Any, I just tell you, anybody that needs to leave, don't, you're not going to hurt my feelings. Just You can go. Because, but I'll continue a little more. I'll go really fast for those of you who would like to see a little more. I'm sorry about that. An hour is just hardly enough time. This is our orchard greenhouse. Okay? And you can't grow fruit trees in our valley without some protection. We learned that real quick. These are peach trees, apricot trees that uh, uh, are, this is in uh, late March, early April. At the end, down there at the end, you'll see there's a bunch of snow. 
That's outside. So outside still winter. And this is what it looks like. We have rolling shutters. We'll wait just a minute for people to, to go. I know some of you need to go. That's fine. Now you roll those back by yes. Okay. Yeah. The only way we could have fruit trees is to basically have what I call a fruit barn. We call it our orchard greenhouse. But trees don't like to be in a greenhouse. They, in the summer, they want to be wide open. So it's open to the sky in the summer. But those will roll shut. You can move the whole roof in five minutes. And the snow builds up on it for the winter time. And it gives them a perfect dormant period. They don't get any snow. They don't get any ice. They don't get any uh, rain. In the springtime, if it frosts, and some of you may even experience that, your, your trees look real nice, they all blossom, you get a late spring frost, you lose all your fruit. That never happens to us up there because we roll them shut on those nights and the trees like it. Um, this is what it looks like when it's open and that's what it looks like when it's closed. It's 88 feet long. Somebody wanted to go back. It's 88 feet long, 30 feet wide. Now, a lot of the summer, we just leave them open day and night. If I close them every night in the summer, we get fruit about two weeks sooner. Yes? I will tell you just a second, okay, when we go through it. So anyway, that's the secret to what we're doing. It stays like that probably five months out of the year during the winter months. In midsummer, this is what you get. You can see how the, the roof above it protects them. These are peach trees. You can see how the roller would roll over them if you need be. We, we grow, these are Reliance peaches. That's what they look like. We also have Red Haven peaches. And we have another peach we're just starting, Contender, I don't have a picture of. Bartlett pears, D'Anjou pears, plums. Our biggest crop are apricots. This apricot tree can produce up to 300 pounds. They're just incredible. Look, I gotta, I gotta stand them up everywhere, you know, to try to keep them there. They're tilting apricots. Usually when you get apricots in a store, they're a little tart, and the reason is is you can't, they can't really ship apricots when they're truly ripe. We didn't know that. When these guys are ripe, you just touch them, and they, 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 you can see the dent there, and they're just super sweet. Otherwise, they're not sweet. This is back in the spring again. They're just in blossom, but in the front, of the, it is too... It is too uh, low to grow fruit trees. So here is where we grow most of our tomatoes and green beans, and we have raspberries right under the trees, uh, kind of. Um, so you get a whole row there of these, but the, the tomatoes, we can't grow them outside because of frost. And even if you cover them outside, the nights are in 40 degrees every night in the summer, except maybe five. They, won't, they don't set hardly at all. You had a quick question? What's the height fit on these buildings? The height of the building is 15 feet at the highest point, so it's just right for fruit trees. Um, six weeks later, it looks like this in the front. Linda's picking green beans to freeze. The tomatoes are growing on the left, but not ripe yet. You see the raspberries are coming on. This is what the raspberries look like. When we pick them, we pick six weeks of raspberries, and we once or twice a week, we get a bunch like that. And here she puts them up to freeze. We've learned you don't just stuff them in a bag, they all go to mush. She puts them on trays, puts them in the freezer till they're hard, then puts them in the bags, and then they're just fresh, look wonderful all winter. Uh, this is what the tomatoes look like when they start coming on. All our tomatoes are from our own seed, and they are all 
non-hybrid, so we can keep our seed. These are Rutgers, and we do three other varieties. When we do, we don't heat this building in the winter because you don't want it heated. You want it to have a dormant period, but you don't want it to go down below zero, and it doesn't naturally just because of the mass and the snow on top of it. At 20, 30 below zero, in here it'll be about 20 degrees above. That's perfect for a dormant period. Um, but when we do heat it is in the first month in the spring and in the last month of the season. So we get an eight-month season, which is about what you get down here, I think, in a lot of places. Um, so we have a heater, but we didn't want to waste our good wood that we use at the house, and we want something that can really put out. So we, we had somebody weld this. It's 900 pounds, has a big door on it, called it the stump burner, and this is the fuel for it. And then you don't waste anything. Your stumps, your, your punky wood, your bad wood, the, or brush or whatever, you can stuff it all in that heater. And I don't even have a wood shed yet. I've been too lazy, and I haven't built a shed for this yet. But it works like this. We don't use it in the winter. This is back in the early season. Now, you may think that we grow all of our food uh, in greenhouses. We don't. We actually grow the majority of it outside. And this is what you get outside. This is our outside garden, 120-foot rows. Everything you see there, except for potatoes, are frost-hardy. Otherwise, you, it won't grow there. Uh, and I'll tell you about potatoes. In the back is a hothouse. That's our little Texas. We found some things just don't like our greenhouses even. They want it hot. They want it humid and really hot, 100, 110 degrees. Melons, squash, stuff like that. That's what's grown in there. But it would never take the Montana winter. So that the main part is just rolled down for the winter. It's just sitting there rolled right now so they won't crush it. We have all kinds of animals in our place. I'll show you some later, those of you who want to, to see. So we have to have a big fence. This is our bear fence, deer fence, rabbit fence, everything fence. Uh, it's the second fence we've had since we've been there. And this one's much better than the first. Notice the top actually has milled logs. I did that with a chainsaw. Uh, and then put a little roof flashing on top. That shields the whole thing from rain and snow, and it'll last twice as long. Because of that one feature, it's so much better. Bottom has a screen to keep out the little guys and the big one for the top. We do get grizzly bears that dig under this maybe three, four times since we've been there. They'll dig a hole. You can't keep them out. If they want to get in, they're going to get in. But they're only after one thing, carrots. They love carrots because they're sweet. They don't know that potatoes are good and all fortunately and all the rest. So uh, we grow a lot of peas because peas are one of the two legumes that we found that are frost hardy. And I don't have any pictures. I didn't know we were going to do this till not too long ago. And so we, we pick them by the five-gallon bucket full and shell them by hand. We eat all we can, and we freeze lots of them because they're, we like them best freeze. But you can dry them, too. And then onions do really well. We had a weed problem until we got into mulching. Mulching just about solved our weed problem. And it's, it's good for your ground. We till it in afterwards. We use lots of grass clippings. We use pine needles. I was afraid of pine needles at first. They're not that acid. They break down really fast. Leaves, anything. Um, these are the, some of the greens and so on. But you see the sprinkler. Those are our potatoes. We grow 800 to 1,000 pounds of potatoes in a year. Uh, and it's all from our own seed. But if it frosts, it kills them. Okay, so the solution to that is our gravity-fed spring water. I have a main two-inch pipe comes through here. I put on three, four, five sprinklers at night if I think it's going to frost in the summer. 
It runs all night. You come up down in the morning, there's icicles hanging from stuff, but the ice protects the plants. Potatoes love damp, cool weather, but they can't freeze. They're fine, and it protects them. Another advantage of having your own spring water. Uh, we do get strawberries, but strawberries are a problem in our area because if they blossom and then it frosts, they're just like a fruit tree. It kills the blossom, but not the plant. You don't get berries. So you have to have some sort of cover to start them. We also get some late raspberries. Raspberries outside in our area are pathetic in how much they bear compared to the ones in the greenhouse. But they do give us some, so we grow what we can. Fava beans are the only other legume that we've found that is frost hardy. It can take a really good frost. They're like a big lima bean. Some of you know about them. We'd never heard of them until a few years ago. They're wonderful. We keep our own seed and they, they plant right in cold ground, come right up. But I, I've heard that they're actually native to the Middle East, which is weird when you think about it. Uh, they grow fine in our climate. Lots of cabbage and broccoli, of course, does very well. And now I just want to show you a little bit of how we preserve food. These are onions when they're getting mature. Notice how the, the mulch is, is old now, but there's hardly any weeds, but there are a few. See the weeds trying to struggle up through it? But it's too late for the weeds because they're mature. Uh, we pick them, we dry them. Uh, we have to dry them in the sun, and usually we can't, and you end up drying them in our great big, that, that great big stump burner. We have a dryer over that, and you can dry stuff like this. Then we hang them in our potting room. It's about 35 to 40 all winter in there. They love it in there. And whenever you want an onion, you just go out and get a couple and take it home. You have them all winter long. Potatoes are the last crop usually we get. And everything's frozen out there pretty much, tilled some, but we're out digging. That's our little grandson now who lives in the wilderness. When mommy and daddy are there and with papa and grandma, when they're not, he's, as far as he knows, everybody grows their own food. Uh, <laughs> And we grow all kinds of potatoes, I said 800 to 1,000 pounds, and from that we have our own seed, so you have to take a little bit out of that. We wash them, dry them in the sun for one day, but you can't leave them out. And then they end up in the root cellar. Uh, that whole row of boxes there is full of potatoes. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.